0: Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of WITS University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject. And we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani and I'm your host. Mapula
1: Mukwena, studying speech and hearing second
0: I think they are involved, but
1: their involvement is not satisfying to students as much as they students want them to be involved. And they could do much better than what they're already doing.
0: You know, bettering the, um, the level of education and the
1: requirements as well. Like, I feel like sometimes the requirements are way too high. Some kids can't just
0: meet those requirements. You know, your marks really have to be good, good, good.
1: I don't know, maybe it's VIRTS or just other, every every high institution.
0: How does the basic education sector link with the higher education sector? Do the problems of access, equality, and transformation that we're currently facing in higher education actually start in grade 1? In this week's episode, we explore these questions by talking to Andile Khele from Equal Education, a civil society organisation aimed at helping school-level learners to lobby for their rights to decent learning environments. Andile is Parliamentary Liaison Officer for Equal Education, Prior to that, she was a researcher and evaluator at Greater Capital, a social impact consultancy, and a parliamentary researcher for the African Christian Democratic Party. She has a Bachelor of Social Sciences in Political Science and Sociology from UCT. very warm welcome to our guest for today's show, Andile Tele from Equal Education. Thanks for being with us, Andile.
1: Thank you for having me, Mahita.
0: So perhaps we could get started by asking you to explain what equal education is and what work it does. Okay,
1: um, well, equal education is like a civil society or more like a social movement. We hate being associated as an NGO um, because we believe that, one, we are member-based, so our members are, are all high school learners. And so we are a movement in the sense that we have leadership, but it's it's democratically elected and the way we function continuously changes every five years. We work with high schools predominantly around Kailicha, Gauteng, Tembisa, and we also have a presence in Limpopo and in KwaZulu-Natal. And what EE does is we just lobby and and advocate for policy changes around the basic education system, particularly focused with infrastructure and just ensuring that every single school has access to just the basic resources. We started in 2008, and it was someone's research project of just doing a social audit, if I can put it that way, of broken windows in Kailija. And from there, we realized that there was so much more to do in just to, in terms of just getting windows fixed in Kalicha. And we started in a school called Lihlaza, where they had 500 broken windows, and it took four years for these windows to be fixed. So from there, we went on to trying to get libraries. So we had a library campaign, and we found that for a school to have a library, they had to have the norms and standards for minimum infrastructure in place. And then we found out that those weren't in place across the board in South Africa. And so we are now very famous for norms and standards. But it was something that we picked up in 2011 after three years of being around, where we were literally just trying to fix windows. But then we found that there's just so much more to do in the sector. Myself, I go to parliaments, I go to legislators, and I just try and educate MPs and MPLs on the realities of education on the ground. And then we have our campaign work, which is led by our students across the country. And they, they tell us what we need to be screaming for and shouting for. And so as much as we can be in the forefront, our members um, really really to how EE functions and what we
0: focus on. Okay, so as a member-based organization that is comprised of school level members, is that right? Mm -hmm. You guys lobby in parliament for basic education rights? Yes. Okay, could you tell us more about your membership? How many members do you have and what, what is their role in directing the campaigns and the lobbying of Equal Education as an organization?
1: So currently we have about 3,200 odd members and the bulk of those are in the Western Cape and Gauteng. And in terms of directing how we engage with policymakers is that in Gauteng right now, they took on a sanitation campaign and that came from the learners in the schools saying that, come to our schools. Look at the state of our toilets, look at the state of our classrooms, and we want them to fix our toilets. And so Gauteng office took that as a campaign, and I think was it last year or two years ago actually had a a march to the legislature, had a march to the uh, department there, and after that engagement with the Sufi, they found that they had an increase, they increased the allocation to sanitation for schools by almost 200 million so it was students saying this is what is happening in our schools and as equal education we want you to focus on this we did the same thing in terms of a social audit where we had children from across 200 schools in the the western Cape just auditing fencing auditing the, the presence of security guards looking at just how many students are in one classroom kind of thing. And so we compile the social audits, we've printed it out, we've put it into a beautiful booklet, and we've handed it over to the Western Cape Education Department. And all that came from learners saying that look at this, focus on this, and take this up to the relevant channels and relevant people.
0: For some people listening, it might be really surprising to hear that one of the main campaigning issues that learners in schools are addressing at the moment are things like decent sanitation and things like broken windows. Mm. Could you talk us through what it's like for a young person to go to school in conditions like that?
1: I'm obviously speaking from a person who works for EE, and I was fortunate enough to not learn under those particular conditions. I, I went to a very good school in in Durban where there were 17 of us in the classroom, things like that. So I can't speak from my experience. But from just the, the learners that we deal with, and we call them our equalizers, you find that not only must you go to a classroom where some of them actually have temporary classrooms which are literally those what do you call them, like the, those steel
0: or like I, can, I understand what you mean like the the corrugated iron or the pre yeah.
1: yes so they have temporary classrooms where you find that there's a thousand learners in the school and let's just say it's a high school from grade to grade to, to matric a thousand learners and you find that there are 60 kids in one classroom. And the minimum normal standards say that there needs to be a maximum of 40 learners per classroom. So already there's an overcrowding. You find that there's one teacher teaching 60 kids. Uh, You don't get that one-on-one engagement with your teacher. A lot of children are just almost ignored, almost forgotten in the classroom. So it's crazy to find that in 2016, we are still, from Western Cape Gauteng, Eastern Cape primarily, we find that a lot of schools don't have enough classrooms and a lot of schools don't have basic sanitation. And it's it's just, it's crazy because we all know that where you are just, it makes you feel better about your space. So if you go to a classroom or go to a school where you, you can't easily access certain things, you can't go to a toilet, unless you either go home to access the toilet or wait until after school. That disrupts your routine, that disrupts you being in the classroom, and that actually disrupts the flow of the actual academic day. And so, just going back to your questions, it's mind-boggling that still children are not accessing the basic basic resources that are needed to just make a school function. And that's not even touching on the availability of desks and test books and, and, and chalkboards, it's just literally can I go to a functioning building.
0: I can't imagine how young people can be expected to perform academically in situations where they don't even have somewhere safe and clean and decent to go to the toilet or they're in a classroom where the wind blows through in winter or the rain blows through. So you've you've painted a really dire picture of the conditions that many of our young people in this country have to learn under. What is the position of Equal Education as an organization on the the reasons and the causes for this kind of under-resourcing and neglect of our schools?
1: It's crazy because you find that the Treasury, let's just say, will allocate certain amounts of money for the education sector, for the basic education sector. And then each province will get their own share. And then you find that some provinces actually really, really function well. Gauteng, mm-hmm. Western Cape, our women like, those provinces function well. It's just a matter of, in certain districts, yes, there are under socioeconomic factors that play into the delivery of the academics. But in terms of using the allocations, using the funds, they are very good and they are very on top of it. And then you find that you go to the Eastern Cape and KZN, where you find that, sometimes they actually return money that's been allocated to them so it's not even a matter of they're not getting enough money the actual provincial department is not using the money and it's not using the funds that's been allocated so sometimes we all go to oh there's not enough funding but treasury cannot fund a system that does not work and if you have plans in place and you're not implementing those treasury has an accountability aspect to it but they can't go to the Eastern Cape cases and say, you use this money. Um, if you don't use it, you turn it, and then Treasury finds other avenues to direct the money um, or, or, or the education. So sometimes it's, majority of the time, it's the provincial departments just not being capacitated enough to actually function fully and to implement certain programs. And a lot of politics come into play where the National Department of Education will say, when we go to Eastern Cape, teacher unions chase us out. Two weeks ago in in Parliament, the National Department said they went to the Free State and they couldn't implement a certain program because the teacher union was like, no, they shouldn't be there. And so things like that, a lot of political play and a lot of political situations factor in where it's unfortunate that they don't look at the reality of children need to learn and children need to learn under certain conditions. And sometimes power politics and power play overrides and overplays on that.
0: So the argument is that we're not seeing a situation of schools being under-resourced. There are resources, there is money that is being directed to schools, but it's not being spent efficiently and properly, and it's often not getting spent at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah across the board from different programs, um, and that's very unfortunate.
0: To me, it sounds like we're failing our children, we're failing our young people who simply want to go to school and be educated. Yeah. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about some of the actions. You've told us a bit about the work Equal Education has done in terms of broken windows and in terms of proper sanitation facilities, but what other kinds of actions or protests or interventions has uh, the movement spearheaded.
1: The one that we are most famous for is the implementation or the pronouncement of the minimum norms and standards for school infrastructure. And that we were literally in court for two to three years with Department of Basic Education where we wanted these plans or these regulations rather to be publicly stated so we'll know so What these norms say is that each school should have certain resources available to them, depending on the number of students. And um, the department had never publicly promulgated those norms. And so what we as Equal Education fought for was for those norms to just be out there. And so for each province to have their own norms that are a mirror of the national ones, and for them to have their own almost infrastructure plan, as to what a school should look like, and what a school that is now being built should have, and I don't know if you have ever heard of the norms, but they have a seventeen-year period where, after three years, all schools should have access to water, sanitation, and electricity. And schools that were built of inadequate or inappropriate material must be eradicated and rebuilt. And then after seven years, every school should have access to fencing and computer labs and science labs. And up to twenty thirty, then. Every single school should have sports fields and just every single type of resource that a school should have. So come November 29, where the first deadline should have been made, which says all schools should have access to water, sanitation and electricity, we found that we are now on the 5th of October and the department is nowhere close to actually meeting that deadline. It just means that Equal Education will once again have to go back to court to ensure that the department tries to meet certain promises that they have um, laid out.
0: So when was this court case won? In
1: 2013.
0: So in 2013, that's three years ago, um, the courts instructed the departments of education to ensure that they publish a list of minimum standards that every school needs to adhere to. It sounds, though, as though um, equal education is concerned, though, that they are not going to deliver on their responsibilities in this regard.
1: Very much so, because this weren't guidelines or, or, or timeframes than we set out. The department put these timelines on themselves. So what we're saying is that in 2013, if you knew that making sure that every single school has access to water would take you five years, that should have been what you had said. But you said you, you had evaluated the system, you had evaluated your capacity and said in three years, we will ensure that every single school of the 25,000 public schools in Africa will have access to water. And that is not the case. And we're worried that there's just going to be a continuous cycle where you say, this year we're not meeting the water, the, the first deadline. Therefore, in seven years, you're not going to meet the second deadline because now you're going to have a backlog of the first deadline. So if you don't meet the first deadline now, none of the deadlines will be met in time. And that's a problem.
0: So there's a lot of concern about whether provincial and national government are going to deliver on their responsibilities in this regard. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the, the gulf that exists between public education and private education at primary and secondary level? I understand that equal education is very concerned with helping to increase the quality of our public schooling system, but we also see you know, the rise of more and more expensive private schools. What role do you think public education should play in our society?
1: Public education is the one sector that everyone can have access to.
0: I'm sure you're familiar
1: with the constitution that says everyone has a right to basic education and therefore the public system should be that one system that is functioning well in order to promote that access, number one, in order to try and maybe make our country more equal. But you find that, I don't know how familiar you are with the basic education sector, sorry, um, where we have quintile one to quintile three schools. And those schools don't pay fees. So they are, they are a no fee paying schools. But you find that those schools are the majority of the schools that you find in the township areas and rural areas. And now we have a thing of quintile one to three schools are for poor working class black people. Um, when, and when I say black, I mean black, Indian, colored. Because those schools are found in those areas. And then you have a quintile four and five schools, which are fee-paying schools. So just because they are fee-paying doesn't mean they don't get any assistance from the government. So you find that um, not only do they have assistance from the government, but through their uh, school fees, they're able to raise more funds, therefore are able to hire more teachers, therefore are able to better their infrastructure. Now it's not only just a, it's not a public school versus private school imbalance. Now it's a public school imbalance where you find that the the schools that you still find in the prominent areas, your former Model C schools are still outperforming the black schools that are found in the township and rural areas. And something needs to be done to change that that difference. Something needs to be done either by refocusing on how schools are allocated funds, because each school has, depending on what section it, it lies in, there's section twenty schools and section twenty one schools. And a Section 21 school is able to hold their own money. So the allocation that a provincial government gives to a school, Section 21 schools are able to have access to that money from the get-go. Whereas Section 20 schools have to almost ask for permission to use money that's been allocated to them. Because either they don't have a function, SGB, um, a school governing body, or the system just feels that the school won't be so able to handle such large amount of money. But you find that that same difference in Section 20 to Section 21 schools is so the same difference you find between a township school, rural school versus a white school in the suburbs. And just more focus needs to be put in our public sector because that's the one place that majority of learners and majority of people actually have access
0: to. So it sounds like the legacy of apartheid has extended into the current times in the schooling system, that the schools in formerly disadvantaged or still disadvantaged neighborhoods are the ones that are under-resourced. So how does this play out in terms of the, the future prospects of the young people who have no choice but to go to the schools that are near them or to the schools that are free if their parents are not able to pay the extra fees to get them into a a better school or a private school. What does this mean for their life prospects?
1: The unfortunate thing is just the cycle of poverty is just replayed. Because our society right now is that if you have a good education, you get into a good university, and therefore you get a good job. And until our economic uh, makeup is no longer dependent on you first getting all these qualifications before you enter the economic sector, a certain percentage will always just be in the cycle of... I don't finish school because I can't afford to stay in school and I need to go and support my family. And you find that a a lesser minority will have the luxury, and I put it as luxury, to actually finish the whole 12 years in school into the higher education sector and therefore into the economics of this country. And it's the same people who are stuck in the poverty trap and being unable to escape it because as long as our basic education system is not fixed, all those issues carry on and carry over to the higher education sector and therefore to the workplace.
0: So we need to see radical action from government in order to try and right the wrongs of the past in the education system. Mm -hmm. Do you think our government has the political will to do what is required in order to make education truly accessible, truly just, and truly fair for all of the young people out there who, who deserve every opportunity in life?
1: I'm going to have to say no because we have such a big and 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 vigorous debates going on about the education sector and our government is just so quiet they appear for a couple of hours one day in in a week and they say they peace and then they 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 disappear and so as long as there is no political will people will start focusing their anger and their demands to the wrong people The government should be responsible for fixing the sector. The government should be responsible for for fixing the system. Them being quiet shows that they are not willing to even come to the table to not only hear demands, but to take those demands forward and and, and implement them.
0: So aside from some of the, the basic campaigns, like getting windows fixed and making sure that schools have proper facilities, what are some of the other big ideas that your participants and the members of Equal Education have about how the education sector could be transformed to become more just and more fair
1: in terms of big ideas i don't want to say we, we have none because we we one focused on the basic edu- education system but we do have our um, i don't want to say two cents to add into different sectors as well like uh, we made a submission to the fees commission because we felt that no one else was going to make the link between basic education and higher education and how what you see now playing out in the higher education sector has been playing out in the basic education sector. It's just it wasn't as popular and, and it wasn't as, as, as vocal. And the wrong, I don't want, the wrong people were pioneering the movement or the discourse. In the higher education sector, UK ZN, I'm from Durban. I know for a fact UK in, and DUT used to literally strive for fees every single year. But until your more affluent universities started making the same noise, it became almost like a trend now to listen to the cries of the, of the students. But the not so rich and the not so in tune with the middle class or the middle happenings of South Africa were almost ignored. There's nothing new. There's nothing big that we can contribute to what's happening. Everything that, 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 that we've been saying is now just playing out on a bigger scale.
0: So Equal Education made a submission to the Hayer Commission looking into the funding of, of higher education so can you tell us more about some of the key contributions that you made because i think that link that you're talking about between the problems that we're seeing in secondary and basic education and some of the problems we're seeing in tertiary need to be made more explicit so the members of the public can mm-hmm. understand them so can you tell us what were your arguments to the commission what were your proposals
1: what we say to that free education should be a reality and, and it shouldn't be progressively realizable as the Constitution says, no, it should be realizable now because we have means to do this. So Africa is not as destitute as the government makes us out to be. We have plans and we have means of making certain things happen. And if we were to focus the same energy into making free education happen, it would happen. We, we said, let there be free education, but let it be focused on the poor right now. And we also say that fix the sector as a whole. And in terms of we don't have enough money, we don't have enough funds to actually allow free education to happen. Look at different ways of taxing people. Look at different programs that you can go without. Look at different luxuries that the government and the cabinet and the leadership of this country can go without in finding more access to, to funds. The country is willing to go into debt to build stadiums. It's willing to go into debt to fund nuclear programs, but they're not willing to go into debt to fund a higher education system. And that's just that's just not forward thinking, and that's just not wise.
0: I think that's such an important point. You know, as a as a nation or as a government, there seems to be a very quick willingness to bail out national airlines to implement very controversial nuclear power deals, yet so much unwillingness to invest in the future of young people. And that's just something that I don't think has been talked about enough. What I personally perceive as the huge wasting of public funds on unnecessary things and neglecting these hugely necessary things.
1: And that's just the reality of it. And as long as people aren't willing to to voice that, that argument will be lost. We're so eager to play up the fun things to talk about and, and, and the people are having fun right now. I'm not saying that people who are striking are having fun, but the way it's being portrayed in media, the way we are we are discussing it as a people, it's, it's almost fun, but we're not getting to the realities of the government always finds enough funds to bail out certain sectors and to bail out and to build certain things. Why not focus on education as everyone else in Africa did?
0: Let's bail out education. Dear government.
1: <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's a new one. Not only people, for bailout education.
0: <laughs> Could you tell us more about, I, I've, I've read some of your comments in the media saying that the problems in higher education start in grade one.
1: The ECD sector, uh, which is the early childhood development sector, is almost non-existent in less affluent or disadvantaged communities. And there was a study done by Nick Spall from Stellenbosch, I think, where he came up with figures of, if you can't read and write between grade one and grade three, you are almost automatically left behind in the system. Because those those are so formative in just allowing you to, to engage with material, allowing you to start thinking of it in certain ways. And if children are left behind in those critical age group, on those critical grades. Come grade four, grade five and grade six, they're already struggling and therefore they are really left behind. So it's not just a, oh no, between grade seven and how's it work now, grade eight and nine, it's almost like, oh, matric and, and, and university. Once you're left behind, when you are seven years, eight years old, you are continuously left behind. And I'm not saying that that's the reality for everyone, You you get people who didn't go to a very good preschool, who happen to go to a very good primary school and in grade four and grade five are able to catch up, but that also goes to where they went. So if you are stuck in a township ECD center and then you go to a township primary school and then a a township high school, where sometimes you are literally a person in the crowd, you don't get that one-on-one engagement. And also when you go home, Your parents were never in that mindset or were never brought up in that environment of making sure that you are reading to a child, making sure that you are buying children, stimulating material. I spoke to this one lecturer from UCT where he's saying his six-year-old child is doing long division. And I'm like, six-year-old? I only started long division when I was like nine. But that's the reality now. And you find that you come to a township school, a rural or preschool, and the only thing they're doing is drawing or scribbling or coloring in and it's not engaging their mind, it's not engaging the imagination. And because they're not stimulating that sort of thinking in such a young age, it's difficult to now play catch up when you are 12 years old, 13 years old, and then therefore 18, 19 years old.
0: And the remarkable thing is that many students who have gone through these systems of education, which are under-resourced, which are lacking in all of the ways you've described, yet make it through matric, with university exemptions, and then get to university, they, they already are overcoming such great odds in their own achievement. And then they get to university mm-hmm. and have to face a whole number of other challenges and difficulties. Like
1: I said, I went to a pretty good school in, 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 in Durban. But when I went to UCT, it was not only just a culture shock, it was like, a, wow, I'm seeing people that I've never engaged. Issues. I'm seeing even black people who were just so wealthy and not only just wealthy financially, but wealthy and experienced people who've taken two years gap here, year, traveling Europe and have a different way of thinking. And this is me coming from a, an interracial, multiracial school. And I had that particular shock. So now take someone from a township school, rural school, who's never shared a space with a white person or a person of of a different color or a person of just a different socioeconomic setting to come into the space where the buildings themselves are just so amazing. Being on campus is just a a different feeling and to not only just overcome that division and that separation, but to now also go into a, a classroom with 400 people. And a lecturer has no time to ask, are you okay? Are you you keeping up? Where everything you produce needs to be handed in online. And if you've never had access to a computer and to a laptop, how are you now automatically supposed to just participate and engage in the space that you've been excluded from for for so long? So there's just a lot of other factors at play, not just financial but socioeconomic as well.
0: So what I'm hearing is that one of the answers to democratizing and transforming our universities is fixing and properly resourcing and investing in our basic primary and secondary education sectors. Yes. Yes,
1: that will take longer and will take time. But in the long run, come 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we will have a different story. We have a different narrative that is is in the media right now. We will have not only a functioning sector but and if we were to take all the the submissions that have been made and all the the wonderful ideas that are just being shared and the government makes a plan to actually implement all these things come 2030 the reality of the NDP will be realized and the reality of your UN Sustainable Development Goals will also be a reality. But we need to start somewhere and that is investing not only just in higher education but from the basic,
0: basic education. I couldn't agree with you more. So for anyone out there listening, how can they get involved in equal education? How can they help and support the work that you guys are doing?
1: Mm-hmm. So we have a website, equaleducation.org does a, and we have offices in Kailicha and the Eastern Cape and in the city centre in, in Gauteng and um, Eastern Cape we have an office in King Williamstown and give us a call or send us an email and we'll definitely get in touch with you and tell you how you can become part of the movement.
0: Although there is undoubtedly a crisis in higher education at the moment, it's clear that that crisis is linked to a bigger picture. Of a lack of redress and transformation in the basic and secondary school sectors if you would like to support the work of equal education please get in touch with them and if you have any feedback on this episode we'll welcome it through the usual channels
2: uh, my name is dando i'm studying accounting fourth year so i started my high school at finish college just as i joined this and then uh, I'm actually not South African, so I did my primary education back in Zim and until I came here and then did my high school. It's been challenging. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the level of um, education is quite high and intensive as well. So you've got to spend um, lots of time studying and that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, looking at the world that we live in today, I think it was two days back. We had some high school students that were just outside and um, Oksondonga. Supporting what was happening here, and I think it you was know, some time last week as well. We had vet students going to Roslyn College to um vet, you know, to mobilise. So uh, it's it's much broader than having people getting free tertiary education. It's quite important that you know we don't kind of polarise it to to tertiary level, but we we engage with all people because if you come to think of it, what's the point of us having free education at the tertiary level when you've got youngsters who can't go to primary school because if you can't be there then you can't come to tertiary so i think it's important that they are inclusive yeah
1: the academic citizen is a podcast sponsored by Asau, the academic staff association of wits university Asau is the union representing the interests of academic staff at wits for more information visit www.asau.org.za the Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mejita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by Balumi Lembenyane. Thanks to Andy Lekele, Mabola, and Ndando for their time. Jurgen Mikel created our jingles.